0: audio is from West Pines Community Church. For more information about West Pines, visit us online at westpines.org. You can join us live Sunday mornings at 9.45 or 11.30 a.m. in Pembroke Pines, Florida, or online at westpines.org. So there's something about Christmas time. The decorations are up, and there's lights, and there's eggnog lattes, and there's parties and gifts that are being bought. There's just something magical about this season. And maybe the best part of Christmas is seeing Christmas and this Christmas season through the eyes of children. There's just something about children and their innocence and, and that they just, they love all the things that are happening, just the magic that's happening. And they have, they have this belief that you're seeing through their eyes. And some of you, you may be like our household, um, sometimes Christmas turns adults into children. I don't know if you've witnessed this, if you have that adult in your home. Um, I do actually, my wife, uh, Rebecca, she is a Christmas-aholic. If um, you may have someone like this in your home, if, if I would allow it, we would start celebrating Christmas in September, okay? There'd be a tree, there'd be songs, and there'd, there'd music playing through the house and all this stuff. I try and hold the line as long as I can, but um, she loves Christmas, and so I will never forget The the first time we had just moved into our home, we had moved back down to South Florida, we had moved into our home, and we're like, all right, this year we are gonna get the Christmas tree to end all Christmas trees, okay, to celebrate our first Christmas in our new home. And uh, the the entryway has kind of a tall ceiling there, so we're like, we're gonna get the biggest Christmas tree that will fit in this entryway. And so we were, um, it was Thanksgiving night, we were having Thanksgiving with some family. And we left Thanksgiving dinners about 8.30, and we saw the sign as we're driving home that said that basically they, they promised to have the largest Christmas trees in Florida. Like, we're going, and we're going right now. So we pulled over, and we say, all right, let's see, and we, we figured we could fit a 12-foot Christmas tree In our entryway, and so we go, we find the Christmas tree, it's all bound up, it smells right and everything. It's got to smell right, your Christmas tree, okay? And so we said, okay, this one, we think we can fit this on, and so we take this 12-foot tree and we put it on our silver RAV4. Now, some of you may be do- calculating the math. A RAV4 is about 11 feet long, okay, or so, and we have a 12-foot Christmas tree on top of this. You, if you saw us driving down the road, you saw green branches and four tires underneath it, okay? <laughs> So we drive home with this tree. Now it's like 9.30 at night and it's pitch black outside already. We pull into the driveway. We have to like open both front doors, okay? And, and we somehow, between the two of us, hoist it off. It just rolls over with a thud that the neighbors felt next door as it landed on the ground. And we like hoist it up and we take it into the house and there's sap everywhere and we've put it on the floor and now we're like, how in the world are we going to, there's no way we're just going to lift it up. So we, we put the, the uh, tree stand on the bottom of the tree and both of us with all of our might lifted up this tree and it promptly annihilated the tree stand. <laughs> Pieces everywhere, okay? Like we did not think this through. So I we can't leave a tree lying there in the in the living room all all night. So I go to Walmart. It's the only thing that's open. It's like ten o'clock at night. All right, I'm like I need the biggest Christmas tree that you have, okay? And they have to like bring it out on a forklift, and I get this Christmas tree stand, okay? And we I put it in the car. We get it. We hoist that up, and now we lift it up, and it's there, and it's all its glory. And then we have to open it, okay? And it was like. We like sniffed the thing, sniffed the thing and it's like engulfed both of us and we realized we could, ba- we, did, we calculated the height, we did not calculate the width of the bottom of the tree, okay? You actually could barely stand in the living room with the tree and we thought, have wow, this beautiful big tree and we'll take our Christmas pictures in front of it, but when you took the picture, it extended out in either direction, so it just looked like we were standing in a green forest, Okay? <laughs> So anyway, there's just these moments at Christmas time where it's just, there's something about it that just gets you back to that place as a child. There's some excitement, there's there's magic, and there's parts of being like a child that we have to like retain and we have to get back to in seasons like this. Because as adults, we have things that children often don't have. We have something called doubt. Doubt. See, children there have this innocent perspective of faith and belief, of all the magic, but so often as adults, as we've journeyed through life, we have this new thing we've added in. It's called doubt, and sometimes we don't know what to do with this. It's all kinds of doubt. We can have doubt in people. You know, maybe it's like, well, you know, I used to think the best of everyone, but man, the circumstances of life have taught me otherwise. I've been stabbed in the back, betrayed, hurt, I've been let down by people, and now I just, it's hard for me to believe in people anymore. Or maybe it's just, man, I I feel like it's just hard for me to have just an optimistic view of life turning out okay. It's just, life has just continued to kick me while I'm down. And so it's hard for me to have belief. Or maybe even more so, sometimes we say, you know what, in in this spirituality of my life, what I believe about God, I'm a rational thinking person. I've got some doubts. There's some things when it comes to God, it's like I try not to think about those questions because I don't have answers for them. And, and you know maybe if I was still like a little kid, I'd be like, oh, I'm fine with those. But I still have some doubts in my mind. And here's the tough thing about doubt, especially when it comes to the spiritual parts of our life. Sometimes we don't know what to do with that. We wonder, if is it okay that I have doubts about God? I mean, can I tell anyone? I'm not supposed to have doubts. I mean, God's got to be mad that I'm even questioning him or he's got to be offended or threatened or, or I certainly couldn't share that with another believer, another Christian. And so what we kind of do is we take our doubts with kind of the shame that comes with doubt. We say, okay, I've got to figure these out on my own. God can't know. Other Christians can't know. I've just got to try and figure this out all on my own with these doubts. And, man, trying to figure that out all on my own, man, those doubts, whether in whatever circumstance it is, maybe it's just the circumstances that you're like, God, I'm praying here, and you're not answering. And I'm starting to question some things. What do I do with that kind of doubt and the weariness that that kind of doubt brings? We're going to look at a passage this morning. We're looking in the, in the book called Hebrews, and we're looking in chapter 1. And what we're going to do through this Christmas series is we're looking at one of the most beautiful passages about Jesus. It's one of the most rich, most descriptive passages about who Jesus is, and we're going to see this description, this glorious description of Jesus, and then we're going to see how this plays out in the Christmas story along the way, and we're going to take this, and we're going to find throughout studying this passage in Hebrews chapter 1, we're going to find incredible hope in the midst of our weariness, and specifically, hope in the midst of our doubt you'd open to Hebrews chapter 1, we're going to start in verse 1. Hebrews 1, starting in verse 1. Let's look and see what it says. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Let me read that one more time, verse 1. Long ago, At many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Now let's unpack this verse a little bit this morning. This is a key verse. First thing is it's saying, is it's saying, it says, God has spoken, spoken to humanity. He says, spoken by our fathers. This book is called Hebrews. It's being written to a Hebrew audience. It's being written to the people of Israel. So when he says our fathers, he's saying the, these people in their, their Jewish heritage, the people of Israel throughout history, God's people. He says he's spoken to our fathers many in different, many different times, in many different ways, um, and he's spoken specifically through these prophets. So let's just kind of break this down because this is pretty significant. The first thing that's important to see is that it says God has spoken to humanity. Now here's why that's key. I don't know if you've ever had a discussion with someone or maybe you've been tempted to believe something like this. Hey, whatever you believe about God, man, that's, that's fine. That's your belief. Whatever I believe about God, that's my belief. You can believe your thing, I'll believe my thing, and that's that's fine. We'll just leave it at that, okay? I mean, who's to say who is right? Or or maybe you've even heard say, man, I got to tell you, it's pretty arrogant for you to say um, your belief about God is right and my belief about God is wrong. I mean, that's a pretty arrogant thing to say. I mean, and and not to mention, I mean, we're like these tiny little ants on this tiny little speck in this puny little solar system compared to God. I mean, you think God really cares what we think? You think he's up there offended like, oh, Joe believes this and Frank believes that. And do you really think he's worried about what we think of him? See, this verse changes all of that because it says God's not just back like, I wish you guys would figure this out, and you're wrong, and you're, none of you are right. Here's what it's saying. It's saying, no, God has said, I haven't left you alone to figure it out. I've spoken to humanity. So it's not a matter of, well, what I think is right or wrong, or what you, it doesn't matter what I think or what you think. It matters God has spoken saying this is who I am. So what matters is all of us saying I'm conforming what I think to what God said we're all just left alone to say well everyone's got to figure out for themselves that'd be a different story but it's that's not the situation this verse is saying God has spoken into humanity in many different ways He has spoken into humanity saying this is who I am so what our goal is all of us not to come up with our own thing that would be pretty arrogant for me to say I'm coming up with my own thing and it's right no what I what we're trying to do is saying okay what did God say I've got to conform my thinking to what God said well how do we find what God said well, it says he has spoken through the fathers of this nation. So we look at God decided, okay, this is how I'm going to speak to humanity. I've got this nation, this people called Israel, and I've got these, these prophets throughout, and I'm going to speak to them in all different kinds of ways. Sometimes a prophet would literally like have a vision from God, and he would write it down. Other times God would say, okay, go, go speak this word, and he would go speak it. Sometimes God spoke through these These songwriters and they would write down this psalm and little did they realize the depth of the meaning behind that psalm. It actually had prophecy explaining things that were to come in the future that they they didn't even realize. God spoke to the rituals and the festivals and the laws and, and all the sacrifices they were supposed to do. God spoke to all these different people through this nation at all different times. And when God would speak, they would write it down. They would record it and it was preserved meticulously through history. And that's what is called the scriptures. That's what we call, at least up until this point when Hebrews is written, that's what we would call the Old Testament. All those ways that God has spoken into humanity through this nation is in in the Old Testament. Well, okay, so God does speak. He speaks in different ways. What is he trying to communicate to humanity? It's one simple message. He's saying, this is who I am. I'm your creator, I'm almighty God, he's saying I'm, I'm perfectly holy, and then he says, and because you're my creation, my design is for you to be holy like me. But he doesn't just leave it at that, he explains more. He says, and you can see by all that I've communicated to you, you can see, wow, I'm not holy like God, I'm not perfect like God. So he says, okay, you've got to be holy like God is holy, but I'm not. But God says, but I still love you. This is the rest of the message you see in so many different ways. I still love you, and so I have a plan to rescue you out of the place that you're in. I'm going to send a person, a Messiah. I'm going to send that person to you. And you see that message, God is holy, we're not, we need a Savior, the Savior's coming. This is what he's going to look like. We get all that message repeated over and over and over and over and over all these different ways, all through the culture and all through the prophecies and all through the Old Testament, we see there is one coming to save us, one that's going to take all of our unholiness on himself and pay for it and wash it clean. So Hebrews opens up and he says, okay, this is what we know. God is the type of God. He's not distant from his creation. He's trying to communicate to us. He's communicating a message in a ton of different ways and he's communicating that there is someone that's going to come. That's gonna save us, rescue us. Now look what he says in verse 2. This is Hebrews 1, verse 2. But in these last days, he has spoken us, he's spoken to us by his son. Now, here's the thing, here's the interesting thing. He says, all of that has been building, this message has all been building to one. Person and at the time Hebrews has been written, this is he's saying, and and in these last days, in these last few years, God spoke to us a different way. His son, the Messiah, was here. Here's what he's talking about. He's saying, look, he's kind of cueing the reader, remember all the ways we were prepared for that person to come, And and then he came. And he's alluding to all of these prophecies about Jesus and, and this is what makes the Christmas story, the, the nativity story, the story about jesus birth so powerful because it shows one after another how jesus is, his arrival here is fulfilling all these different prophecies there 's all kinds of prophecies in the Old Testament that God prepared us that, he, that for this son, all kinds of things, one for example. Is that he would be born in Bethlehem. We always sing, oh little town of Bethlehem, we know that there was a stable in Bethlehem. That's so that detail is so important. They could have just said, hey, it was a small village that they traveled to. That detail is so important because hundreds of years before, that was one one prophecy that you would know it's the Messiah. Look at this, look at this verse. It's in Micah um, chapter uh, five. Look at this, it says, But you, O Bethlehem, Ephratha, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth. Forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient of days. It's saying, man, the reason why the, we sing a little town of Bethlehem, the reason why it's so important that Mary and Joseph were going to Bethlehem is because they're saying, remember, this was promised. Yeah, but couldn't some of these prophecies, couldn't they just have added them later? Couldn't they just written these old? I mean, how do we know for sure these prophecies were before Jesus? Okay, remember that these Old Testament passages we're not just taking that on faith that those happened before Jesus. That's a historical fact. Like That is not disputed archaeologically or historically. We have the ancient manuscripts that date hundreds of years before Jesus. That is not something that anyone debates. We have passages like that that are promising that Jesus is going to come and and how he's going to arrive hundreds of years before he came. Things like he would be uh, born in Bethlehem. And you, you have in these prophecies, you have these two different types of prophecies, and this is important. You kind of break them down in two categories. There's the ones he can't control. He can't control where he's born. He can't control that not only is he from Israel, not only is he through Abraham, through Israel, through the tribe of Judah, but he has to be a descendant of David, literally. And if there's one part of history that the Jews in antiquity did not mess with was their ancestry. They knew that meticulously. He had to be from the line of David. He had to be born in Bethlehem. All these things, he can't help those. He can't manipulate those. But then there's some of these prophecies that he could affect. Like it was promised hundreds of years before that the Messiah would be riding in on a donkey like a triumphant king. So you imagine that? Like if, I, if there's a prophecy, okay, someone's going to arrive like a dignitary to a parade in Miami and he's going to be in a Hummer stretch limo, okay? That might take me some years to orchestrate, but you can, you can control that. Does that make that less of a prophecy? No, both of these are important. On one hand, you have to have the prophecies that Jesus can't control because it proves that he is who he's claiming to be. On the second stand- standpoint, you have to have prophecies he can control because that's him declaring, I am who I say I am. He's, saying, he's demonstrating, I know I'm the Messiah. See, go get a donkey. I'm going to ride in and show you. It proves that he's saying, I'm not just accidentally the Messiah and didn't know it. There's got to be prophecies he can't control and prophecies he can control. Now the thing that are so amazing that these gospel writers, especially like the book of Matthew, for example, as he's telling you this story, he's not just telling you a Christmas bedtime story. He's saying, okay, this happened, and remember there's this prophecy. And then this happened, and remember there was this prophecy. And then this happened, and remember this prophecy. He's giving you ironclad proof that Jesus is the Messiah. Let me, give you, let me give you one specific example. The whole story about the wise men, that's more than just, wow, what a neat thing. I mean, they were probably looking for some frankincense around there, and God just brought it right to them. That's kind of nice. It's more than just that. It had been prophesied hundreds of years before that kings would bow down to him. It was prophesied that they would lay precious gifts before him. It was also prophesied that innocent people would die at that time period. And if you remember, the wise men set off a chain of events and the King Herod, he, when the wise men talked to him, remember he got super jealous and very threatened and to try and snuff out the Messiah. He had all of the young baby boys that were in the outside of Jerusalem, that in Jesus' area that were three, year old, three years old and under, they had them killed. That, was, that fulfilled a prophecy, that was foretold. It fulfills another prophecy that Jesus, which says the Messiah would come up out of Egypt. Well, Mary and Joseph and Jesus, they happen to flee to Egypt and they come return back out of Egypt. See, what you see here, these are all prophecies that Jesus can't control. What you see is these writers are writing, showing you this fulfilled a prophecy, this fulfilled a prophecy, this fulfilled a prophecy. They're saying, look, God is giving you evidence that Jesus is who he said he is. And when you look at all of these prophecies, I want to make a bold statement. It is impossible that Jesus is not the Messiah. Now, so yeah, that's a that's a pretty big statement. I mean, I appreciate the gospel writer Matthew. Thanks, buddy. But come on, that's a big. You're saying it's impossible. You're saying no one else could kind of accidentally fulfill some of these. That seems like a big stress. I'm telling you, it's impossible. So let me put this in today's terms. Um, we're going to use some statistics. There's a study about um, several years ago that a college professor did. And he took 12 classes, combined total of about 600 students. He was a mathematician. And he decided he wanted to see the statistical probability mathematically of Jesus fulfilling the prophecies. He just wanted to know the stats. Okay, so what he did is he he started with eight. He said, "Let's just pick eight of all the prophecies," and he had these six hundred students through twelve different classes pour over these, do ancient, do research, research in the historical data, and figure out. Okay, these are the probabilities of fulfilling each one of these, and put them together. The probability of Jesus just fulfilling eight. And he would take whatever the, the students collectively came up with after all their research for each of different prophecies. He'd take the most skeptical student, like the most conservative number, and he'd take that number and use that. He wanted it to be the most conservative study that he could possibly do. And sometimes he'd take their number and he would just make it even more conservative just to be safe. And then he took this study and he presented it to the uh, American Scientific Science Affiliation, this group of international scientists, and said, okay, here's our statistics, are these valid? And they poured over it and said, okay, this study is valid, okay, and I want to share with you some of these numbers. But um, if you're like me, math is not my strong suit. I had to take all these numbers and run them by Pastor Matt, he's our resident math nerd, okay, so... Um, I I ran through all these, but let's just kind of get our bearings. I just want to share some basic statistics before I start throwing some numbers at you. Okay, let's just start with this. What are the chances that in your lifetime you might get struck by lightning? Okay, just let's just start with something simple. Okay, the chances that you will get struck by lightning sometime in your lifetime is 1 in 3,000. That concerned me a little bit when I saw that, Okay. (laughs) I am never going outside when it rains. Okay, we'll just start with that. Just to kind of get some framework, that'll be kind of our bottom number. Struck by lightning, 1 in 3,000. Okay, this next statistic is interesting. What are the chances that you were switched at birth? Like, you went home with the wrong family, okay? You don't have... Your parents, are, you're not who you think you are, okay? What are the chances? And honestly, this, this might be good news for some of you, okay? I'm just going to give this to you. Okay, chances you are switched at birth, one in two, roughly 200,000, okay? Some of you are like, okay, that helps. That explains a lot in my life. Okay, one in 200,000. What are the chances that you're going to get attacked by a shark, okay? Let's just throw those numbers up there. You know, you might say, I get worried when I swim in the ocean or even in my pool sometimes, okay? (laughs) Chances that you're going to get attacked by a shark. Luckily, we're getting some big numbers. That's one in 11.5 million, okay? So you're pretty safe. More likely, you're switched at birth, just so you can kind of put that (laughs) in perspective. Okay, one more statistic, and we'll jump into this study. Okay, The chances of you winning the Powerball jackpot, unfortunately, it's much less chances than any of these. Okay, chance that you are going to win the jackpot, one in 176 million. Okay, you win it all. Those are the chances. All right, I just want you to take a look at those numbers because I I want you to kind of, let's just use that as a framework. Okay, those are some tough odds um, especially after you get after the lightning one, those are, those are some, some tough odds. Okay, now let me give you an idea on this study. They took these eight prophecies. Let me just give you one so you can see how they worked these prophecies out. All right. For example, one of the prophecies was about, it, it's prophesied in the book of Zechariah that Jesus would be betrayed by 30 pieces of silver. That's a really specific detail That was hundreds of years before Jesus. And so this is how they thought through it. They're like, okay, the question here is very simple. Of the people who have been betrayed, one in how many has been betrayed for exactly 30 pieces of silver? The students thought this would be extremely rare and set their estimate as one in 10,000 or one in 10 to the fourth. We will use one in 10 to the third. Because you see how they did it. They said, okay, what are the chances that that could happen? The students, like the most um, skeptical, said, we'll say 1 in 10 to the 4th. And he said, let's just lop off a zero to be safe. This is kind of the mode of their operation. They did eight prophecies like this. And these are the chances of Jesus fulfilling eight, just eight prophecies is this. Go ahead and put it it up there. Chances of Jesus fulfilling eight prophecies is 1 in 10 to the 17th. I have no idea what that means. So let's look at what the number is. Okay, look at this number. This is the number right here. It's one in 100 quadrillion. Okay, I still have no idea what that means. So luckily, they gave some more details in this study. Okay, if you take a silver dollar, all right, and you put it in a pile of 100 quadrillion silver dollars and you've marked one with a sharpie, okay, and you mix up 100 quadrillion silver dollars, this is the chances that you reach in and you pull out the right one on the first try. Okay, how big is that bucket of 100 quadrillion silver dollars? You would have to take the state of Texas and fill it up two feet tall, tall high with silver dollars. Then you would release someone in there blindfolded, They would wander around through Texas, reach down in, no, let me try El Paso, no, I'm thinking more Austin, okay, then they get to San Antonio, they reach in and they pull out the correct one. That's the chances mathematically of Jesus fulfilling eight of these prophecies, but there's more than eight prophecies. So I'm sure you're wondering, what if he fulfilled 16 prophecies? What would be the number if Jesus were to fulfill 16 prophecies? It would be 1 in 10 to the 45th. Still don't know what that means. Show us what the number is. That's 1. That number right there is quatordecillion. <laughs> That's 1 in 1 quatordecillion. If you have a silver dollar and you mark one of them, and you put it in a pile of one quarter decillion silver dollars, it now becomes a sphere because you cannot fit it on planet Earth. And if it was emanating out from planet Earth, it would extend past the sun in either direction 30 times. The chances is you're swimming through the sphere <laughs> of one quarter decillion silver dollars. And you happen to find the correct one on the first try. That is the chances of Jesus fulfilling, anyone fulfilling, 16 of these ancient prophecies. Okay, now, just for point of comparison, you say, okay, that sounds impossible. Technically, that's not impossible. Mathematically, impossibility, according to Borel's law, impossibility is 1 in 10 to the 50th. That is when they say there is zero chance. It's impossible. Okay, so technically this is possible. So there's more than 16 prophecies. In fact, Bible scholars say there's 48 major prophecies about Jesus. So what if Jesus fulfilled 48 major prophecies, which he did? What are the chances? Okay, the chances of him fulfilling 48 prophecies is 1 in 10 to the 157th. Let's look at the number. That's ten unquin Okay? I spent all day yesterday working on that. Unquin Okay, just so you can impress your friends tomorrow, I think we should say that together. Okay? Ready? Unquin Okay? Impress your friends with that tomorrow. okay? If you have a silver dollar, you cannot use it. So let's use electrons. Now, give you an idea, electrons are really, really small. How small are electrons? If you lined up enough electrons to have one inch long, that would be so many electrons that if you counted them day and night... And let's say you counted really fast. You could count like 250 a minute. Okay, you are flying, and you never lose count. And you count day and night. It would take you more than 19 million years to count that number of electrons. But let's say you compile a sphere of 10 unquinquagantillion <laughs> electrons, and you mark one electron, <laughs> and you pile them all in one giant sphere. okay. The, the universe, some estimate, conservative estimate of the universe, is that the diameter of the visible universe is in the billions of light years. That would not even fit, that pile of electrons would not fit in the visible universe. It's something like, okay, we're now like well past just straight math, but it's something like 10 octillion universes full of electrons that you send someone blindfolded in and they pick out the right electron on the first try. Okay, Here's the thing, let's just put this in perspective. When he got to the end of this study, this is what he said about these prophecies that Jesus fulfilled. He said, any man who rejects Christ as the Son of God is rejecting a fact proven, perhaps more absolutely than any other fact in the world. You say, well, I don't know if it's like any fact in the world. Let me remind you. Let's pull up this last slide here. Okay, let me just remind you something. Chances you're switched at birth, one in 200,000. Chances of Jesus fulfilling 48 prophecies, one in unquin That means it's far more likely that Jesus is the Messiah than you are who you think you are. (laughs) Here's Here's the reality about the prophecies. Those are just the 48 major prophecies. Some Bible scholars have looked at nuances of the prophecies, and some have lists into the 300s, some have lists into the 400s, of different nuances of these 48 prophecies that Jesus fulfilled. Why are we talking about all this? That One of the most beautiful, powerful things of the Christmas story is that these writers are saying, do you realize God is prepared to prove to you Jesus is who he said he is? Matthew is, this gospel writer Matthew is telling you about the wise men and about Bethlehem and that from the line of David and just showing you his ancestry. He's showing you his lineage because he's saying this is important because it is impossible, literally, statistically, beyond the realm of possibility. It is mathematically impossible to fulfill all of those prophecies accidentally. It's just impossible. And these gospel writers are saying, God wants you to see this. See, this is what's so important to realize when it comes to our doubt. God's not offended by your doubt. He's not threatened by your doubt. He's saying, I gave you a brain. I made your brain. I made your logic. I made your rationale. I made made math and science. I, I invented those. I'm not offended or bothered by your your doubts. It's like, on the contrary, I've prepared for those doubts. I'm wanting to work through those doubts with you. I'm not threatened or mad. He's like, I want you to come to me with your doubts. He's saying, I'm up for the challenge of your doubts. Saying, he's, like, he's saying, no, you don't have to run from me. You don't have to hide. You don't have to make sure I don't tell any Christians about any other believers or any of my friends about what I'm doubting. Or He's not saying, well, that's skeptic. I know that he's doubting me. I'm mad at him. He's like, no, I, I, I know. I want you to come to me with your doubts. He's saying, I want you to meet with me. I want you to work out your doubts. I want you to say, God, I'm questioning this right now. God, I'm, I'm struggling with this. I, I heard this or I, I found out about this. I'm, I'm struggling with these doubts. Help me. And he's saying, I want to do that. But he says, in the end though, I'm gonna leave it as a step of faith. It's going to be faith in the end. Well, why does God do that? Why doesn't he just show us just. Show up and just show us. He says, in the end, I've given you tons of evidence, but I'm going to leave it as a step of faith. And here's why. If he didn't, if we said, God, you have to prove it to me absolutely 100%, you're going to have to show up to prove to me that you're God. See, here's then, we're beginning our relationship saying, God, you have to fit into my intellect. And what we're doing is we're putting our intellect above God, which means we don't understand who God is. There's nothing above God. And so he's saying, I, I'm going to make it faith because what faith is, is even though I have all this evidence to work out a lot of this stuff, he's not saying just stop thinking. He's saying, I want you to think. I want you to wrestle. I want you to, to, to have these doubts processed through them. Be honest with yourself and honest with the people around you. He's saying, but in the end, you're going to also not just submit your life, not just submit your future, not submit your lifestyle. I'm going to make it so you also have to submit your mind. I want to be in that, that, he's saying, I want you to be in that place where you're also submitting your mind because then you're actually treating me like God, and you're actually submitting everything, your heart, soul, mind, and strength. He wants, it, he wants us to take that step of faith, but he's not going to leave us alone in our doubts. He says, come to me with your doubts. Let me work through it with you. You might be here this morning, and you might be searching. You say, look, I, I don't know where I stand um, with God, I've got a lot of doubts. I don't understand why he allows these things to happen or why I don't understand this or this doesn't make sense to me and you're still searching. Please know. I hope you know being here, you're, this is a safe place to ask questions. We want a journey with you. And God's saying, I'm not afraid of those doubts. He's saying maybe pray what, uh, what one man prayed to Jesus. He said, I believe, help me with my unbelief. He's saying, I'm not afraid of those doubts. Maybe you're a newer Christian Maybe at the end of a service recently, you prayed and put your faith in Jesus. Maybe you raised your hand. Maybe you came forward at one point. Maybe you took one of those wooden cups. You put your faith in Jesus, but it was this powerful moment, this emotional moment. But then all of a sudden, the emotions died down, and all of a sudden, those questions came back because you never had addressed those questions. And now you're like, oh no, what happened? And you're rattled. Maybe the doubt's creeping in or rattling you and you're saying, oh no, am I supposed to have these? Was that even a real experience? Have I just been fooled this whole time? Is that just something emotional? No, 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 don't be rattled. God's saying, no, you still have good questions. It's okay. And I'm calling you to myself. Let's work through them. Don't be rattled. This is part of the journey to work through doubts. College student. Maybe a high school student, you're about to be a college student, you're going to go and all of a sudden you're going to be in an environment in school where all of a sudden you're going to have people asking you tough questions that know a lot more about history and anthropology and world religions and all kinds of things that you don't know and science. And all of a sudden they're going to start pummeling you with questions and you're going to have things you don't have answers to that. Don't be rattled. It's okay. It's part of the journey. He's saying, it's okay, there's doubts. I want to work through those doubts with you. I'm not threatened by your doubts. I'm up to the challenge. I gave you that brain for a reason, Christian. Maybe you've been journeying with Jesus for a long time, and you don't—you're not even thinking another thing of it. But all of a sudden, someone, your coworker, said something and you didn't really have an answer for it, and you're like, "Whoa!" It's stuck in there. It's like a little splinter in your thinking. You can't pull it out. Maybe you read a blog, or you read, a, watched a documentary, or heard something, or read a book, and now you're like, "Man, I don't know what to do with these questions I have." Don't be rattled. That's part of the journey. He gave you a brain. He wants you to worship him with it, with all your mind. Seek it out. Christian who's going through difficult circumstances... You say, man, here's my problem. I love God, I believe in God, but he told me that he was good and now I'm praying and I've prayed over and over. God, take this away. God, end this season. God, you've drawn near to me. Get me out of here. Take this out of my life and I've prayed and I've prayed and I've prayed and I thought he was a good God. I thought he was a loving father and he hasn't answered my prayers. He's just left me here to suffer. Tell that to him. Cry out to him. Take your anger and your doubt and your hurt and your wounds. He's saying, I can handle it. He's like, I gave you that brain. You're a thinking person. That's how I made you. Bring it to me. He says, I want to work through it with you. And in the end, I'm going to leave it as a step of faith, he says. Because I want you to submit everything to me because I'm I'm your God, your creator. You say, what do I do? I'm struggling with my doubts. What do I do? Take it to God, but let me warn you. Don't take it with God and say, okay, God, here are my doubts. Um, Here's my proposition. I'm going to give you a little test. If you do this, then I'll believe in you. Because here's what you've just done you've just said, okay, God, here's my test that you have to prove yourself. You've once again taken control. And God doesn't operate like that, not because He can't, He can blow your mind. He does that because I, he says, I'm going to leave it as a step of faith so that you have to surrender your mind to me in the end. And so here's what you do. You say, God, here's how I'm struggling. Here's my doubts. You've, I'm seeking you. You promised that I would find you. You have to show up in your way in my life, and you know that I'm fragile and I'm weak and I'm doubting, so you've got to make it, have it make sense in my mind somehow, but I leave it to you. Please show up. That's a prayer he'll answer. That's a prayer he'll come alongside of you. And he'll show up in a way that's even better than you could have ever thought, in a way that's perfectly designed for you, tailored to you, to bring you right to that edge of faith for you to surrender to him. You know, we've been talking about a lot of these prophecies about Jesus' birth, but you know, some of the most extraordinary ones are about his death. You know, as prophesied hundreds of years before in Isaiah 53 the Messiah would suffer. It says in Isaiah 53, this is hundreds of years before Jesus, that he would be striped and pierced. In fact, in the book of Psalms, it says that he, the psalmist says that the Messiah will have his hands and feet pierced. Do you realize that's even before historically they would have even known about crucifixion? Do you realize it's prophesied that in the midst of all his suffering, The Son of God, the Messiah, would not have any of his bones broken? And you say, why is that a, that sounds like a weird detail. Well, fast forward, this is what happened. Jesus was hanging on the cross, and the custom, if they needed to speed up an execution, the custom was they would go and they would break the legs of the person being crucified so they could no longer pull themselves up to get a breath. So they'd break their legs and they would die very quickly. And so they broke, they, fast forward to Jesus is hanging on the cross, they break the legs of one thief on one side, they break the legs of a thief on the other side, and they get to Jesus about to break his legs, and Jesus is already dead. So then they stab him in the side with a spear, and they don't break his legs. Now why is that, why, why would they try, why are they trying to speed up the crucifixion? Because that evening that Jesus was crucified, there was a Jewish holiday, and they needed to get these men down off the cross by law. So what's the whole deal? What's the big deal about his, his legs not being broken and the bones not being broken? Well, there's an interesting other law, and another way God revealed this is in the, the time of Passover, it was very important when they sacrificed this Passover lamb to God as a sacrifice that he has, taken them, that he has washed away their sins. They'd take this, this lamb, and they would sacrifice this lamb, but all throughout their history, there was, there was a command that they would never break the bones of any of that Passover lamb. Now, what was the holiday that they were hastening this crucifixion for? It was Passover. And hundreds of years before, God's like, it's right there. The Passover lamb. To save you out of the slavery of your sin. The destruction of your sin. He's pulling you out of your sin. See, God says, I'm holy. We know we're not. But he says, but I love you so much I want to save you and I'm going to send a Messiah. To save you. And here it is for you this morning. Some of you just need to take that step and say, all right, I believe. I don't yet have all my questions answered. I'll do that on the journey. But I'm ready to just say, I believe. If that's you, I want to lead you in a prayer this morning to just declare that. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes with me? If you want to this morning just simply declare to Jesus that you believe, then I want you to pray this simple prayer right there in your seat in the intimacy of this moment with you and God. Just simply say this to God. God, I don't have all the answers, but I believe. I'm choosing to believe that you love me, and even though I don't I'm not worthy of it. I'm choosing to believe that you sent the Messiah to die on the cross. To save me. And I'm choosing to believe that all my sins, past, present, and future, have been washed away, and that I'll live forever with you in heaven one day. Thank you for saving me. In Jesus' name. Amen.